Welcome to Cane and Bound Podcast, episode number 59. I'm your host this week, Philip Wells. We begin today with the Cane and Bound devotion with Pastor Tom Barthel. Laughing on the Road to Heaven, Genesis 21, 1-7. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him, as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The day has come. Abraham wandered through the land of Canaan as a stranger for twenty-five years. The promise was stated that he would have his own offspring. But the promise was to be fulfilled through his wife Sarah. And after twenty-five years... Have you ever found yourself waiting on the Lord? How long, Lord, until I find a faithful and loving wife, until we are blessed with children, until you take my suffering mother from this world of pain and sin to the glory of heaven? I've heard the cry of pain and waiting from the curse of sin come from many lips, including my own. We all grow weary in this life as we wait for the promised future blessing that is ours. We may not have the promise of a special son to be born in the line of the Savior's ancestors, but we have future promises that we still wait for. God promises to do away with the pain of miscarriages, of broken promises, of betrayed friends, the pain of losing a husband or wife to death, or sometimes even harder to bear, desertion and adultery. How long, how long until the pain, our sojourning, our waiting ends, Lord? How long until your blessing is poured out on us? Sarah became pregnant, according to the time when God saw it best, after a long waiting, after the sins of Abraham and Sarah came up short of fulfilling any promise for themselves, after they despaired of all hope. Then he fulfilled his promise for them. Why? The Lord was gracious, as he said, just as he promised the son was born. At that very time, which was promised, exactly one year since she heard the Lord speak of the date, the son was born. And twenty-five years after the first promise of numerous offspring, one is born. It led them to laughter. Can you picture the ninety-year-old mother of a newborn? Holding him with joy and peace, a peace and joy she never knew she could experience. God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh at me. Sarah says, will laugh with me, she says. God's promises lead to shouts of joy and laughter for all who wait on him in hope and faith. When the long waiting was over, the son born of Isaac's offspring was born, the son of God who took on human flesh. He was born just as promised, and because of his birth, life and death on a cross, we see all of God's promises fulfilled. According to his time, the Lord was gracious, and he kept his promise. 
And as we behold him who rose on the third day, the waiting was over. The disciples can only be amazed. We who wait now for his eternal kingdom will laugh in joy when he comes again. I will wait and hope until then. The Lord is gracious. He has done all as promised. And he will bring us to his eternal land of rest. And now we listen to Heavenly Road by the Camp Philip Campfire Choir from their album Campfire Songs. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Keep my feet on the heavenly road. Take my load of guilt and care. You know the road and the potholes there. The load I have is the one you bore. Why do I carry it anymore? Lord, please guide my stumbling feet. The path is narrow, the way is steep. My back is bent with a heavy load. Keep my feet on the heavenly road Lead my way with your guiding bow And turn my eyes to look above If I should slip to the left or right Keep my heavenly goal inside Lord, please guide my stumbling feet The path is narrow, the way is steep My back is bent with a heavy load Keep my feet on the heavenly road Though my traveling companions are few I know that the way to life is you So let me follow and let me walk The trail the way you always talk Lord, please guide my stumbling feet The path is narrow, the way is steep My back is bent with a heavy load Please keep my If I can't walk, then let me crawl. Lord, please guide my stumbling feet. The path is narrow, the way is steep. My back is bent with a heavy load. Please keep my feet on the heavenly road. Lord, please guide my stumbling feet. The path is narrow, the way is steep. My back is bent with a heavy load. And now it's time for Freedom in Christ with Pastor Mark Falk. Galatians 4, verses 1 to 7. No longer slaves. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. 
So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, and God has made you also an heir, NIV 1984. Slaves is a strong word. It may seem strange then to think that the Jewish Paul is talking about the time of the Old Testament when God's people were under the guardianship of the law that God himself had given through Moses. There have been many possible interpretations of the basic principles of the world, but it seems best to think of these as the principles under which the chosen nation of Israel was compelled to live. Paul is speaking to Gentiles, but since they have been feeling pressure to live Jewish, it is fitting for Paul to deal with it head on. He does. Being a Jew had many advantages. This is the people among whom God expended great effort to keep alive the promise of the Savior that came down from Adam and Eve through Abraham and Seth and Terah to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. The history of the Old Testament shows how, from the beginning, sinners rejected both God and his promise. In plain terms, it was hard work to keep the chosen people in line and under the gospel. That brings us to this allegory of the minor son, heir to the estate. This was exactly the position of the Old Testament Jew. All the prophets and promises were there among this people from beginning to end, but they had to be treated like children. Any detailed reading of the Law of Moses, the code given by God to this one people, will overwhelm us with its detail. From what you could eat, to what you could wear, to how you had to worship, to what you might lawfully do on your day off, the Sabbath, every detail of life and marriage and family and community was precisely ordered. We modern-day children of God would chafe under this system. But this was the loving guardianship of the law. The guardian was not much different from the pedagogue of chapter 3. The pedagogue was a slave, but he was in charge of the, his master's minor son. The sons of God under this system were very much like slaves. Listen to Paul. We, namely Jews, were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. The basic principles were law, all law. But when the time had fully come, the change, situation changed. God sent the Son to die for those enslaved under law, his law. God kept the law of Moses more perfectly than any Jew had ever done. He never failed to obey either spirit or letter. And then he died. God died under law as a punishment for the sins of slaves who always chafe under the righteous requirements of God. Why this parable? Paul is speaking to Gentile, non-Jewish Christians who are being seduced by Jews back into a slavery that was always heavy for even the most pious Old Testament believer. Paul is warning them not to give up the wonderful status of sons. Look back at chapter 3. For a spirituality that leads away from Christ into a slavish life of rules. 
Not for a moment does that give us in the New Testament a license to sin. But that is a discussion for another day. For today, this is the lesson. In the tremendous freedom of the New Testament, we have awesome latitude in our daily life and our Sunday worship. Indeed, our Sunday worship may happen on Monday evening or Wednesday at noon or Saturday at midnight. All that we need to remember to do is to point our hearts and our worship towards the one who has died to make us sons. But that is no burden. Jesus is freedom, not slavery. Once again, this paragraph ends with these wonderful words about our inheritance. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. And now we join Pastor Tim Smith with God's Word for You. God's Word for You. We're in Job 19, and we're going to begin with the first uh, 12 verses. Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. Ten is a number of completeness in the Bible, especially in, in poetry and in some of the prophetic uh, utterances of Scripture. And here Job doesn't necessarily mean ten as in one more than nine, but really many times, several times. Eliphaz has spoken twice in three chapters. Bildad has spoken twice in two chapters and Zophar once. Now counted either as six or five speeches, they don't really add up to ten in any way apart from a round number like lots. On the other hand, when we see numbers in the Bible in a historical context, we should be careful not to let them drift into symbolism. Uh, for example, Job's children were ten in number because Job and his wife had one more than nine and one less than eleven. This ten isn't symbolic either, but we can take it as a round number. In fact, the Greek translation, the Septuagint, doesn't even translate 10. It just says, you speak against me. Verse 4. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. Job's language here is picturesque. Literally, he says, my error is a house guest within me. But his meaning is clear. He maintains his innocence. Verses 5 and 6. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Now, Job is mistaken about this. God doesn't tempt us. James says that in James 1.13. Job's real enemy is the accuser, Satan. And it would help us to remember that the devil is really fighting against God. Job is secondary in the devil's heart. The devil knows just how to tempt us, just how to make us fall into sins. But Jesus knows our temptations too, and he helps us in two ways. First, most importantly, Jesus has given us forgiveness. Remember Ephesians 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Secondly, Jesus has also sent the Holy Spirit to help us turn away from temptation, which we are only able to do with God's help. In Psalm 119, the psalmist prays, Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Remember your Savior when temptations come your way. He will give you strength to say no to sin. But when you do fall, 
Don't ever forget that his forgiveness is already yours. Let's read verses 7 to 12. Though I cry I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. You remember this? Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I think I'll go eat worms. Job's complaint would be a lot more like a children's playground chant if he weren't so deadly serious. Job had reached the conclusion that with God against him, who could possibly be for him? How could he do anything? How could he heal, grow, survive, or live in any way with God against him? Job's words here are not very far away from Cain's complaint. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. This is Genesis 4. He said, I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. But notice Job's account of how he perceives God's opposition. Let me describe it verse by verse. In verse 7, God doesn't answer or give me a verdict. In verse 8, God has blocked me and darkened my path. Verse 9, God has taken things away from me. Verse 10, God tears me down and uproots me. Verse 11, he counts me as an enemy. Verse 12, he is at war against me. And in verse 12, the action mounts as God advances with an army. He sets up a siege and encamps all around him. Job feels trapped and there seems to be no way out. God seems unjust and unfair and an enemy. That isn't always the devil's goal. We don't need to think of God as an enemy to stray away from the path of salvation. All the devil wants us to do is stop trusting in Jesus through anger or indifference or doubt or some sin or guilt or shame or just foolishness. With Job, the devil wanted God to seem like the enemy. If the devil can get us to push away from the arms of our Savior, well, he's done all he wants to do. Readers who are familiar with the King James Version might be right in assuming that the word troop in verse 12 is related to the name of Israel's son Gad. And that's right. In, in Genesis thirty eleven, Leah is surprised by the birth of her fifth son, and she says, a troop is coming. In, in the King James, uh, a troop cometh. I think the NIV takes another meaning there when it says, what good fortune. But the troop idea is there in Israel's dying blessing on his son Gad with a series of of Gad comments. Gad will be attacked, he'll be gadud, by a band of of raiders, of Gads, of Yagudena. But he will, Gad, he will attack, it's really Yagud, them at their heels. That's Genesis uh, 49, 19. Let's get back to the idea of the devil wanting to attack us. Keep yourself focused on God's forgiveness. Don't listen to what the devil whispers. God tells us everything we need to know about eternal life in his word. God's not the enemy. God is the one who gives eternal life. In Christ, I'm Pastor Tim Smith. This is God's word for you. We end our time together this week with Abide With Me from the Branches Band from their album, Christ.
crown him the king. Thank you.
You have been listening to the Canaan Bound Podcast, episode number 59. This podcast was first shared in February of 2013. Visit CanaanBoundPodcast.com to see how you can support the ministry of the Wells and of the artists featured in this podcast. Once again, my name is Philip Wells. It was a privilege to be your host for this episode. We encourage you to visit wells.net to find a Wells ministry location near you. Thank you for listening.